Our guest this week on the AI and Industry Podcast puts it this way, if your business is still in business a decade from now, it's very likely that many people with legitimate, valuable, sometimes complex roles will be automated out of those roles. But luckily, there are things that business leaders can do about it. I think often the risks of artificial intelligence in the near term, namely technological unemployment, are framed in a doomsday light in a way that quite easily could turn off business leaders and very rarely do people assess what could legitimately be done about it and if there are precedents in the world for how automation can be offset to ensure the stability not only of an economy but the stability and ongoing success of businesses as people are moved about transferred and sometimes maybe even lose their positions how do businesses survive in kind of the PR side of things how do they continue their operations despite all these various technological factors that will likely befall us in the decade ahead. Kevin Legranger is our guest. He's a PhD. He's also a professor at NYU, background in economic history and sociology, and he spent the last nearly a decade focusing on considerations around the farther reaches of AI and transhumanism in the last two years, almost exclusively knuckled down to the task of what do we do about automation in AI and industry? Kevin goes over a lot of the current research that he's had to dig through in terms of what the likely impacts of these changes are to be, what kinds of jobs are more likely to get automated. Some of what he says in that regard will likely be a surprise for maybe many of the business folks who are tuned in. And he also talks a good deal about what can be done about this and what some likely solutions could be from his perspective after assessing all the various risks and the different ways that businesses and governments now are both planning on and in some case implementing uh, efforts to hedge against the factors that could topple uh, an economy or topple a company. I think that many of those points will be salient for the business folks tuned in who are thinking about the next five or 10 years and what that might mean for their company and their staff. Kevin recently finished a book called Surviving the Machine Age with James Hughes, who heads up the IEET, uh, who's also been uh, on the podcast many, many years back. Kevin and James are, are both folks that I personally respect. Uh, it was good to be able to chat with Kevin again. I hope that those of you who are tuned in get value out of this from kind of the business perspective uh, when Kevin speaks about sort of the risks at hand in the near term. So without further ado, Kevin LaGranger with NYU uh, speaking about technological unemployment and what businesses can do about it. Kevin, man, it's great to have you back in the program. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you. It's been, it's been, I, you know, when we first got on the horn, I was like, man, it's been like four years since we've talked, but it's really been like two and a half. Since we last chatted closely, a lot of your work has been on the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on the working world. Uh, you've been buried in that for the last two years. A lot of our audience is in the corporate space. I'm sure you've talked to plenty of people in, in this, in this uh, domain, kind of the white collar work. You know, we got developers tuned in, we got middle managers tuned in, we got people with government jobs tuned in. When you look across all the research that you guys did, all the research that you drew upon, what are some of the major impacts that seem rather eminent in the next five or 10 years in terms of changes in the corporate world from AI? Well, in the corporate world, first of all, I, it's pretty clear already that AI has impacted the working world. A Ball State study done recently shows that 88% of job loss in the last decade is due to automation, not to things like outsourcing or immigration. And so it's a huge, huge deal right now. 
And it's only going to get more exacerbated. Automation is, as you know, is advancing rapidly and mm-hmm. geometrically. So I think in the next decade, we're going to have a, a very large shifting of jobs from humans to automata, robots of various types. And that's going to be a big change, not just for the working classes. They're going to, any kind of repetitive job is going to be, and already has been to a great degree, taken over by machines. But also machines are taking middle class jobs. And for instance, if you look at what's projected to change over the le- next decade, there are studies that show accountants, for instance, are 98%, have a 98% likelihood of losing their professions uh, to yeah. robots. I mean, if you think about it, that's already happening with programs like TurboTax are getting very sophisticated. You know, so accountants, if they don't lose their jobs, they're going to have to adapt and their jobs will change. So I think that's what's going to happen in the future is that middle class jobs are going to change and become more focused on communication, management, and more personal counseling type of things. So my accountant, for instance, will spend more time talking with me one on one. That's how he'll earn his money. Yeah. And telling me about, how I might uh, adjust my behavior to harbor my money better rather than just doing my taxes. He'll probably, that'll be fully automated in 10 years. Huh. Okay. This is, you touched on something that I think is worth diving a bit into, which is that a lot of these middle-class jobs that involve some sort of work that at some point an algorithm will be able to nail, those jobs are going to either sort of evaporate and, you know, retraining might be necessary here and or they're going to move into emphasizing more of these harder to sort of quantify and automate facets of sort of human interaction of communications, management, and counseling are terms that you use. These are kind of explaining, I think what is management is kind of bigger picture thinking, not heads down, bang away keyboard work. And then counseling communication is more human relations are are these sort of the safeguards when when uh, our business you know listeners tune in and they think about all the different roles of people in their own companies whether it's people above below them whatever is it the the kind of bastion of defense against being automated is it kind of the ability to orchestrate and manage and the ability to communicate and consult that'll maybe safeguard against you know being replaced by a machine yes all those things will do exactly as you say and the one other thing that's going to be hard to automate and will be very valuable in the future, is creativity. So an ability to work in a team in a creative capacity, an ability to manage projects, an ability to manage interpersonal relationships, all of those things will be the the bastions of human beings in uh, 10 years from now and in the future. Because those things are very hard to automate. We We have AI that's getting very, very smart, but it's still despite its advances in uh, things like speech recognition and, you know, deep learning, doing the things I just mentioned is going to be next to impossible for machines to do in the near future, maybe 200 years from now. Hmm. Wow. But, well, that, that is, uh, huh. I know that there's all kinds of opinions on that particular topic. 200 years is a darn long time, but I know what you're getting at. That's significantly harder to automate than, let's say, putting all of your expenses in the right rows. Right. You know, like, you know, at, at some point that's going to, that's going to go to something better, better than, uh, than, than our current monkey suit. You know, there's going to be a machine that can pull that off. So, you know, I think what would add some color to this is to talk about maybe, you know, examples. You talked about accountants maybe earning their keep by finding clients who are maybe, you know, a little bit bigger ticket uh, and, and worth the consultative time, who have the budget for the consultative time and are, who are willing to actively pay for something hands-on. And that, that really that's, you know, they, they might have a machine doing all the math, 
but they're going to sit down and help you plan for the next year in a way that a a machine in a box maybe wouldn't be able to, even if it had the knowledge, it wouldn't be able to sit down and drink a coffee with you, make you feel comfortable and make you feel prepared. That's that's one right. little example that you, you touched on. Are there other examples that, that you feel comfortable fleshing out in terms of what the future of a particular position looks like, whether this is you know a, a programmer or developer, whether this is a, a middle manager? You talked about middle-class jobs. Many of those folks are employed by the companies that are that are tuning into this to this program. What are other examples of middle class yeah. jobs that are going to be changing in a big way? Well, let me talk to the programmers in your audience. Programming is already moving toward. There are already AIs that can do programming, as a lot of your programmers and computer science Probably scientists know. know. Yeah. So pretty soon we're going to having we're going to be able to have computers that program other computers, and programming itself will become a less and less attractive employer option. But if programmers can branch out into the more creative aspects of, of computing, for instance, human computer interaction, HCI, which involves design work, teamwork, creativity, that kind of thing is going to be much more bulletproof down the line than programming. Basically, you need to look at more complex tra- retraining for more complex jobs that involve dealing with human beings um, and more than with just simple uh, or more repetitive machine processes. So here's another example. Even writers aren't immune to this. There's already, a lot of people don't know this, but over the last- Yeah, narrative science, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Well, over the last two to three years, there's a a word processing program called Wordsmith that's been writing almost all the financial stories, or many of them, and the sports stories for Associated Press. And they've actually been able to multiply their number of stories that can kick out by about 20-fold because they're using AI to write programs and, or sorry, to write the stories. Yep. And because if you think about it, those finance stories and sports stories are a bunch of numbers it's with just facts. Yep. sentences. F- fill, yeah. fill in some darn adjectives and, and verbs here and, and let's just turn this into a paragraph. Yeah. Right. But if you take a longer, more complex story that has to do with something that's complicated, like say politics, that's pretty darn hard to replace a human being with a machine to, to do that. So even journalists are going to have to retrain and redirect. And there are there is a possibility down the line that you and I talked about just before we started this audio, where in the long run, I think human beings may be able to incorporate themselves with machines. Yeah, yeah. Elon Musk has talked about this kind of yeah. thing with neural lace. And so in the long term, I think humans and machines will probably work in a more symbiotic way. Yes, that's a podcast unto it unto itself, not just an episode, that's an entire podcast unto itself, but certainly an area that I'm passionate about. I think thinking about what that looks like long term is a big deal in terms of uh, avoiding unemployment in the the more kind of middle near term here. You're you're articulating something that sounds a bit like if work is heads down pure execution, we're just more likely to be able to automate it, whether it's high tech skills you learned at your masters at Stanford or whether it's reasonably low-tech skills like writing an article about who won the college basketball game, but not that writing isn't complicated, it's just you know, maybe a little bit less complicated than you know, uh, building the next Facebook or something. Heads down execution work, a little bit more likely to be automated in that if you have a job that involves drawing in and making sense of broader context, like the perspective of users and how they're going to leverage this technology or mm-hmm. all the various exactly. political players and, and the history factors that go into these political decisions, right? These are things that it's really unlikely we're going to be able to machine drink in all the context and human relations and then translate that. So if you're, if you're drawing on broader 
contextual kind of inference uh, from from wider human knowledge than your particular heads down narrow deep domain. It sounds like you're a little bit on the safer side here as automation sort of trudges forward. Yeah. So the takeaway from this is that for for people in the audience is that you need to keep learning and you need to keep enhancing um, your job skills and keep trying to move sideways from, you know, if you're in one particular arena right now, look into training for other arenas to make yourself more useful to, to, to the company that you work with. The yeah. more things you can do, uh, the more of a, a utility infielder you can be, the more longevity you'll have in any particular job category. This is really good. So and we're going to get at the end, we're going to talk about some of the solutions that you came up with in your recent research. Uh, aiming to kind of bypass some of the bigger downsides that could occur from this. Let's touch briefly, maybe the next five minutes or three minutes or so on, you know, what you see as, you know, we talked about these trends, what jobs are maybe more likely to get automated, uh, how prevalent that might be in terms of white collar and middle-class work. What are some of the bigger catastrophic stuff that we want to avoid? What are some of the impacts? Let's put it this way. Business leaders tuned in. What are some of the impacts that that crowd's going to have to bear in mind that will be real hurdles to business, employee relations, et cetera, in, in the coming decade or so as, as automation kind of plows into all these industries. What are, what are some of these biggest kind of issues or risks? Well, one of the biggest, the, the, probably the biggest risk is that with automation, which is very tempting because it really helps the bottom line of, of companies. If you can automate uh, a job, it's admittedly, you, you can't avoid the, the fact that it becomes much cheaper. Oh, yeah. I mean, a robot doesn't have to be fed, doesn't have to doesn't have to take a drink, doesn't get sick, doesn't miss days of work, except if it breaks, in which case you need people to fix it. That's yep. one possible job category for a human. But the thing is, is the temptation is to just start laying off workers. And I think we're really facing a, re a repeat of the Gilded Age about 120 years ago, where we had an electricity-caused industrial revolution and gas-powered gas engines. And those two things put a lot of people out of work suddenly, buggy whip makers, carriage makers, wheelwrights, horseshoe, smithies, they all lost their jobs over the period of maybe 15 years. Now, they had 15 years is actually longer time span yeah. than we're facing now <laughs> yeah, because yeah. digital technology is moving much faster and changes much faster. I think that's the big difference between this industrial revolution and all the previous ones is how fast it's moving. So the upshot is Corporate supervisors, I think, need to be careful to try to figure out ways to re-employ their current employees, find ways to make new work for them so that you don't just do mass layoffs. Because what happened in the Gilded Age was mass layoffs caused social unrest and a lot of violence, you know, the Haymarket Square riot, the Everett massacre at a coal mine, yeah. and so forth and so on. Those things, a lot of violence, about a generation for about 20, 25 years, and then finally automation started creating more jobs than were lost. Henry Ford employed a ton of people in his new factories. But that kind of thing, we don't want that to happen again, I don't think. Where no, no. we where in the next 20 years to have tons of people be put out of work, rise up in violent revolt. I mean, to some extent, that's already happening. Look how many people it, during the last election cycle mentioned the fact that they were desperate about their future job situations yeah. and they voted accordingly. Yep, they voted accordingly indeed. Um, so yeah, can we can we avoid the desperation and unrest of those previous eras? In other words, uh, it sounds like kind of risk-wise, we had talked about common themes of jobs likely to be automated. Very heads down, 
deep and narrow within a specific domain, less connected and plugged into human soft skills being essential, less connected and plugged into wider contextual knowledge and drawing together different business and industry factors being being pulled together. If, if we have a job void of those factors altogether, and, and we really are heads down working, uh, even if it's high paid stuff, it, it sounds like that's those are the jobs that are at risk. You know, folks who are listening might be able to, A, I mean, maybe this is them, but B, they might think of the people who they employ, then there's probably a good per- percent of them who are heads down, banging away in a very specific thing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so let me just say there are two things that that I think in the short run need to be done to corporations can do to help those people. One is focus on retraining and reemploying those people, provide training at the job, an opportunity to move sideways. The second thing is to subdivide jobs. That is, reduce the work week. Amazon's already trying this, reducing some of their employees to 30-hour weeks, and that way you open up uh, more space for more employees. They're not doing it well for one big reason. They're not paying the employees the same amount to work less. So what's going to happen is they're going to get those employees are going to get disgruntled with being paid less and working less. They're not going to be happy about that. Sweden is doing it differently and doing it the right way. In Sweden, a whole bunch of businesses across the country are reducing the work week to 30 hours for their all of their employees. And there's a couple hospitals that are doing this that are uh, sort of the biggest co- companies. And then what they do is they pay the those employees the same amount of money. And of course, they need more employees now because yeah. those employees are working less. So they hire more employees. Now, that's a higher labor cost, but it's offset, they find, because the employees work much more efficiently, even though they work less. They're much happier at the job. They have fewer... They have less sick leave and so forth and so on. And what ends up happening is they found that their profit margin is the same or better, even though they employ more people. So that's another, that's another possibility for the future. And I know corporate executives listening in on this, they're going to be dubious about this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. I would say to them, just go take a look at the Swedish studies. They're all over. You can Google. Uh, there's some stories in the New York Times recently about this. Yeah. Um, and I would say Socially, as a society, we also need to do a few things. One of the things uh, Jaron Lanier in Silicon Valley has mentioned, the idea of micro taxes, so that we can all benefit from things that we provide to large corporations for free right now. Two things in particular. One is our personal data. Every time our personal data is used, we get nothing. Why shouldn't we be paid for that? Those large corporations like Google and Facebook eventually will be the, the motors for putting people out of work as they automate more things. Amazon's probably a better example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, micro tax for data that they use, and then that gives people micro incomes to help cushion the effect of unemployment. The other idea is there's a lot of, a lot of code being used uh, right now for free, base code that's, that runs in the background and, and provides platforms for, for other coding. A lot of that stuff is provided for free on, on open source boards by hobbyists why shouldn't those people be paid micro fees as well hmm. if, if, so, if what they're you what they're creating is being leveraged by businesses who are able to profit from it exactly Got it. okay so you, and we're talking about and again broad social reconstructing the way that we think about you know earning your keep and whatnot these are important bigger picture concerns but i think what you're fleshing out is what might be the levers that we twist and turn to sort of maintain fairness and uh, whatever the opposite of unrest is. It's funny, the opposite of unrest is not rest. Unrest is a very interesting word like that. Um, <laughs> but whatever, uh, you know, whatever a safe 
profitable, functioning, healthy society looks like, maintaining as much of that as possible. What you're saying is it may involve a lot of these small adjustments at the point of benefit, finding ways for automation to still kind of quote unquote pay its due so that we don't have robber barons and then people eating their shoe leather. Right, exactly. You don't want this increasing income disparity or that'll cause violent social unrest as well. Nobody wants that. And by the way, there's already a precedent for micro taxes, and that's the state of Alaska. Everybody in the state gets a micro income from the oil companies because the oil companies are extracting oil from the Alaskans' property. Wow. Interesting. So, okay. So, I mean, if you think of it like that, that there's already a precedent for that, and corporate, you know, America is already doing this in Alaska. It's just a sort of similar move in terms of the tech companies. I, uh, I really, I, I know we're, we're right on time. I, I want to just highlight something I think is really important to ask you one tiny last question, Kevin, before we run out. You talked about, I, uh, this is a show where we very much talk about facts over sort of a preference for a particular political ideology. I think that some people might associate you know, universal basic income or whatnot with a political ideology. I, I like to put source and facts on the table and have people think for themselves. I like to think we're a show that encourages that. You mentioned a mm-hmm. great precedent for this micro-taxing idea. Precedents are really important, Kevin. Business people need precedents. Intelligent people who make decisions need precedents. I think exploring this is important. You talked about a great precedent for kind of buffering, you know, a lesser work sort of situation as well in terms of what, what Sweden's up to. Again, great to be able to look at the homework there and businesses, I think, in the next decade are going to be seeing what lessons can we draw from this to kind of keep our company slash our society, you know, functioning properly. Two great precedents. You said retraining. Kevin, do we have any good examples in government or in business of companies who are doing this well, in your opinion? Because I think people are going to want to model excellence. Well, I think a lot of tech companies already, I mean, to give them their due, they already provide opportunities for moving sideways, expanding skills, expanding job opportunities. I think Google especially does that pretty well. They actually have created all these different subsidiaries and people can move between them if they have ambitions if they're smart enough and if they work hard enough. I would also say, just to go back to UBI for a second, you mentioned it. There are great precedents for that. You know, UBI is not a new idea. Nope. It, it's been, it was started with Thomas Paine just after the American Revolution, and it's been promoted by both the left and the right. Some right-wing uh, thinkers who, who were in favor of it uh, include Charles Murray, the libertarian theorist, Richard Nixon, and Milton Friedman, all of whom were in favor of UBI. Because if you think of it in conservative terms, it gets rid of big government because you reduce a huge government bureaucracy to nothing almost because you simply send out checks. And by the way, Finland, the whole country is doing this. They, mm. They're providing a minimum income of $600 a month. You just have to calibrate it so that they are careful to calibrate it so it's not too comfortable because they want people to work. But yeah. um, then there are, of course, liberal philosophers who also like the idea of UBI because it's, they consider it more socially just. So there are precedents on both sides for UBI. Cool. And, and I think, again, looking at precedents, looking at good examples and trying to model that is worthwhile. I think it's interesting to note for the folks tuned in, you, know, you did a tremendous amount of homework in, in uh, writing this last book uh, and in, in giving talks and presentations on the topic. The fact that the solutions that seem most viable in the corporate world, after looking at the major trends that are hitting, the things that sort of flesh their way to the surface for you are kind of buffering work hours and time to maybe make room for more people or improve kind of the health of of people and maybe, you know, work on the well-being side, as well as retraining broader context sideways skills. It seems Mm -hmm. like if nothing else, these are 
sort of worth pondering notions for people in charge of hiring, growing companies, procuring technology, determining the, the direction of their entities, because we're likely to see a lot more precedents of those kinds in the future. And we have some great homework for people tuned in who want to know what does a precedent for these things look like. You were kind enough to give us a little bit of your research there as well. Kevin, thank you so much for being able to share your insights and being back in the program with us, man. I appreciate my, it. My pleasure. It's been, it's been great talking with you. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.